Fellowship Podcast. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul gives a laundry list of why he says, praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and what a list it is. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. Let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start a new series in Ephesians starting this morning. While you're turning there, let me just say thank you. Uh, We have so many people who volunteer and serve and make the body of River Fellowship happen. Uh, I just want to say thank you. It is such an honor and such a joy, such a privilege to serve alongside of you. There are ministry teams through the ministries that we have uh, that are already activated. Um, we just have a spirit right now of if something needs to be done, everybody just jumps in and we just get it done. And thank you very much for that spirit. I, I hope as we move forward as a congregation that that will just be part of our DNA. As we move forward, we just maintain that spirit of service to the body and service to the community. So thank you very much. Well, let's look at Ephesians chapter one. The, the theme for this morning is celebrate God's goodness. And that's what we wanna do in this text this morning. So let's look here in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, we're introduced, Paul basically introduces himself as the writer, and he probably wrote this around AD 62 while he was imprisoned in Rome. But he, he then identifies who he's writing to, and it's to the saints in Ephesus, to the believers, to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a hub city. It was a port city. It was uh, a metropolitan city. It was multi-ethnic. But it was an idolatrous city. In fact, it had some 50-plus temples of other gods and idols in the city. It was the largest center of worship, had the largest temple in that known world for the goddess Artemis. So Ephesus was not a friendly place for the Christian message. Paul spent a couple of years in Ephesus, teaching in the synagogue, um, teaching in the marketplace, discipling new believers. Acts 18 and 19 kind of give us some insight into Paul, his time in Ephesus, uh, the love that he had for that church, for that city, uh, for the relationship there. So what we see here now in Ephesians is Paul is writing, in essence, to a new church, saying, let me give you some insight. And so he gives both theological and doctrinal insight, and he gives some very practical how-to living instruction. In other words, the first three chapters are what some people call orthodoxy, about theology and doctrine, but then the last part of it is what they call orthopraxy, how we put that into practice and how we live the Christian life. And so that's kind of the way the, the book is divided. But Paul starts all of that by praising him and celebrating the goodness of God. Look in verse three. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So he starts right off the bat, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says it again in verse six, a little bit differently, to the praise of his glorious grace. He says it at the end of verse 14, it kind of finishes this little section, says it again a little differently, to the praise of of his glory. What he's doing is simply proclaiming the goodness of God. That's what we're doing this morning. We're proclaiming and celebrating the goodness of God. And that's what Paul's doing right here 
in the text. And then he goes through and tells why. He just gives a, a laundry list, a, a whole list of things of why he praises God and why he is celebrating God at this time. And that's what we want to look at this morning. I've kind of condensed all of those lists to three, I've, I've categorized it to three elements. Why do we celebrate God? Why do we praise God? Let me give you three reasons this morning. Here's the first one. Because God saves. Sounds very elementary. God saves. Look in verse four. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So God says, he gives us a few descriptors here. The first is it says that he chose us. That word chose means to select or to pick. The cool part about this is that the self-existing, the self-sustaining creator of all things who is not lonely, who has no need of companionship, initiated a relationship with us. He chose to have a relationship with us, so he chooses us, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. But it goes on in verse 5 here and adds to that and says, he predestined us. Now, that means to determine beforehand. This is an interesting concept. In verse 11, it kind of of melds these two together. It says, in him, we were also chosen, having been predestined. This opens up kind of a debate and a discussion and at times an argument in the Christian circle for centuries between what many of you know as free will and predestination. Or, can I choose salvation, or has that already been chosen for me by God? Now, this is a pretty important topic because it deals with the fact of, can I even be saved? If God doesn't choose me, do I even have an opportunity to respond to the message of Christ and enter into a relationship with Christ? I'm not going to go very deep into this this morning. We can do that at another time because I have something more important I want to talk about here in just a minute. But I do want to say this. There are passages in Scripture that do talk about the fact that we're elected, predestined, chosen. There are also passages in Scripture that talk about the universal invitation of salvation. Whosoever will may come. God desires none to perish, but that all come to repentance. God so loved the world, everyone, that he gave his only son that whoever comes could have life. So what we see here is this dichotomy, and most of us want to make it an either-or. We want to say it's either free will, and we make the choice, and God's out of the picture, or it's completely chosen and dictated, and we're completely out of the picture. But in reality, it's a both-and. They both work in unity together. We see this a little bit in verse 13. He says, you are included in Christ... When you heard the word of truth, having believed, you were marked. In other words, you were included at that point that you believed. So the the reality is both elements are here. A pastor named J.D. Greer says this, the more people I share Christ with, the more people seem to keep getting elected. (laughs) 
And he talks about that this, this comes in unity. It's a both and. Let me try to explain it this way, maybe to give you a little bit of grip on it. Picture a trampoline. You have the mat, then you have the frame. And then connecting the mat to the frame are all of these springs that are tight, that pulls the mat tight, connects it to the frame so that you can jump and the trampoline works. And it's actually the tension of the springs from opposite and opposing directions that create the ability for the trampoline to work. If you were to take off one side of those springs, half of those springs on the opposing side, and they're no longer existent, you don't have a trampoline. It doesn't work. The same is true with this doctrine. It's the tension of the two that makes salvation work. It's the opposing elements. It's both the dynamic of free will and it's the concept of predestination that work together that is hard for us to comprehend and understand and explain, but it's the tension of the two that make it work. John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see both in action. You see a drawing and you see a coming. You see an initiator and you see a responder. God draws and we come. But De- Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. In other words, there are some things of God that are secret, that are mysterious, that we cannot understand. His ways are higher than our ways. He's greater than us. There are a lot of things about God that are mysterious and we just can't get. Those belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. In other words, there's that step of faith and we make a mistake sometimes by just, by just getting so involved in that doctrinal issue, we miss the big point of salvation. Here's the point I'm trying to get to this morning. God loves you so much that he chose you. God has initiated the relationship with you. Because he cares about us so much, he initiated relationship. I'm gonna tell a little story about myself. It's, it's not one of my finer moments, uh, but I'll just be real and, and call, it, call it good. Um, when Denise and I were dating, we met at Hardin-Simmons, my wife, Denise, we met at Hardin-Simmons. And so after a period of time, we started dating. We'd been dating about a year, I guess. And I started having feelings for her that I'd never had for anybody else before. Stuff going on, and I was getting really nervous, getting really scared. I was wavering, I was doubting. Is this really a person I wanna invest my life with? Is she the right person? Do I wanna pursue this relationship? All that kind of stuff. You guys that have dated, you know what I'm talking about. One reason is because I thought I was going to be single. God was calling me into ministry, and I thought, man, I'm just going to be single and just love God. But secondly, I thought, well, if I'm supposed to get married, is she the right person? And I'm asking all these people, is she the right person? So I, I was getting really nervous. So one day, we're up in the library study, and I just go to her, and I just say, Denise, this has kind of been going on for a couple of weeks. Denise, I just think we need to break up. I just don't feel right about this. This is what God's doing. I don't think I used the God card of God told me to do this. I don't think I said that. But it was just, you know, yada, yada. So, so there's, there's no other person. You haven't done anything. I just, I just, what I, so I broke up with her. She took it like a champ. 
I mean, she did it the right way and she kind of did her thing. And what was really funny is that next week on the campus, I mean, that news just kind of spread like wildfire. Daryl and Denise aren't dating anymore. Denise is available. And they're just, these guys just like vultures <laughs> you know, coming after Denise. And I didn't like that. So I don't know, it was a week or so. I came back to her and I said, nah, Denise, I think we need to be dating. <laughs> you know, I'm working through this. So we got back together. I don't know how long it was, a month or so, these same feelings of doubt and wondering and wavering came on my spirit again. And so a month or so later, I came back to her a second time and said, Denise, we need to break up. <laughs> Went through the whole spill again. Man, she was a champ the second time. I mean, she handled it the right way. The vultures came again. The whole scenario happened again. A couple of weeks later, I come back to her the next time saying, we need to get back together. We need to, and so we do it again. And she, for some reason, received me back the second time. She said, okay. Another month or so passed. Now she was actually in Fort Worth staying with her parents. I was still in Abilene. So I'd gone to her, to her house, her parents' house on one Saturday night. And these same kind of things started revving up in me again. So I'm at her parents' house, spending the night at her house on Saturday night. She thinks everything's wonderful. And I pull it one more time, the third time. Denise, I think we need to, to break up. I just, uh, well, I could tell that time that I, I better make a decision because there probably wasn't going to be a third welcome. <laughs> so that morning I'm in the living room on a uh, sofa bed and I, and I say unto God at this point, God, I need a word. I need, to, I need direction. I need to nail it down. It's one or the other now. So I, I said, I'm not leaving the room until I, I, I know what I'm supposed to do. Well, the morning passes. The morning passes. Denise tells me later, she's wondering, okay, what's he doing? What's going on? Because I'm not getting out of the room. I'm just in there. Finally, I get out of the room. We just kind of talk, hang out. We eat lunch. We come out. I'm in the front yard of her parents' house. She, she still thinks I'm wavering all this stuff. And I tell her, Denise, I'm going to come back next week. And when I come back, I'm going to talk to your dad about permission to marry you. And I got my car and left. <laughs> you know, she's, she didn't know what to think. But here's the issue with all that. I just, I, I, was, I was so nervous. I, 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 I was so unsure. I was, I'm wavering. I'm doubting. I just didn't know what was going on. I'm saying all that and sharing that for this one reason. God never wavered. God never doubted. God never wondered, am I doing the right thing by sending my son for you? Am I doing the wrong thing to initiate and pursue relationship with these people? He never wavered. He loves you so much. The word said he chose us before the creation of the world. Before the beginning of time, he made a decision that I will send my son and I will save them and I will choose them. And he never wavered from that point. So much he loves you. But he continues that in verse seven and says, he redeemed us. In him we have redemption through his blood. This word redemption means ransom, means to release or to, to buy back. And it's the picture that I think most of us have heard. If you, you have something, it's, this something is yours. Someone takes that something from you, 
And now they are asking for a ransom. If you want this something back, you have to pay me before I will give it back to you. That's this word. And this is the concept and the principle that he has redeemed us. When God created man, there was this perfect, complete unity and oneness between God and man. Well, because of original sin, the tempter comes with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's sin, that complete oneness and unity now is taken away. And in essence, Satan has taken that oneness away between God and man. Because of that one sin we know in Hebrews, because of his sin, now we all are born in sin. We've all sinned and fallen short. So now every one of us are in that same state. So what God says is, I'm going to buy them back. It's as if Satan is holding all of us hostage and there has to be a ransom paid. And so he says, okay, through my blood, my death is going to be the ransom that I'm going to pay and I'm going to buy them back. So he not, just, he not only chose you from the beginning of time, but then when we were stolen away, in essence, he now buys us back through the blood of Jesus Christ. So his death on the cross was the ransom that bought us back. So he didn't just initiate a relationship. He now initiated a ransom to buy us back. But then it continues and says that he has forgiven us. We also have the forgiveness of sin. That means to cancel a debt or to be released from a debt. We know that the wages of sin is death. We know that because of sin, someone has to pay that price. So in essence, apart from Christ, we have a debt that we have to pay. And that debt is death. But Jesus says, I'm going to forgive that debt. I'm going to write it off as paid in full and forgive them. Now, here's the bad news to all of this salvation issue. The bad news is that we can't earn this salvation. We don't deserve this salvation. And we're unworthy to receive this salvation. But here's the good news. We can't earn this salvation. We don't deserve this salvation. And we're unworthy to receive this salvation. He loves us so much that in the midst of our unworthiness, he offers his son and he chooses us. Knowing that we can never pay him back, he still offers his son and chooses us. Why do we celebrate his goodness this morning? Why do we praise him this morning? Because God saves. But there's a second element that we see in this passage. God saturates. And this is really good, some good word pictures. Look in verse three. We'll read it again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. That word blessing means to act kindly or to impart benefits. Really what he's saying here is that he has imparted to us the benefits of being in Christ. What are the benefits of being in Christ? Well, it's every spiritual blessing. In other words, it's everything that he is and everything that he has. 2 Peter 1.4 says it this way. We become partakers of his divine nature. So that when we are in Christ, he saturates, saturates us with himself. Everything that he has, everything that he is, becomes ours in Christ. Let me give you a word picture to help re- relay this. For some reason, this is just the word picture that comes to my mind. 
Let's say I come into a restaurant and the host sees me and says, well, welcome back, Daryl. He knows me because I've been there. He knows me, have a relationship. He says, let me take you to your table. So he takes me to my table and he seats me down at the table and he says, by the way, it's on the house, it's on us. You don't have to pay for your meal today. Then the server comes and when the server comes, I say, can I have a menu, please? He says, no, we're not gonna give you a menu because we're gonna give you every single menu item that we have on the menu and enjoy. So he goes back and he just starts bringing me all this stuff, steak and potatoes, grilled chicken, chicken fried steak, salmon, fish, desserts, fruit, no tomatoes, no lettuce. <laughs> but he just starts piling in all of this stuff, everything in that, that they have, every single menu item that they make, they bring it to me so I can enjoy free of charge. I'm stuffed with every good thing that that restaurant has to offer. That's the word picture. When he says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, every single thing that God has, everything that God is, he blesses us with everything that he is. But not only that, verse eight goes on and makes even a bigger picture. Let's pick it up in verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He has lavished on us all of the riches of God's grace. That word lavished, it means abundance, uh, an excessive amount, an overflow. It literally means more than enough. We see this in scripture, if you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus their families with two fish and five loaves. And we know the story, they received 12 basketfuls of leftovers. That's the concept here of being lavished with more than enough. Here's another illustration. It's another food illustration, I don't know why, sorry. <laughs> but you know when you go to an Italian restaurant and you get this you know, big deal of pasta, and then they come, I don't know what it's called, but they come with that little cheese grater thing and they'll ask you, you know, would you like some Parmesan? Sure. Okay, and they start and they say, tell me when. So they start and you say, okay, when? And they just keep pouring. Okay, when? They just keep pouring. No, really, when? when? And they just keep going and keep going. That's this word. It lavished, it's more than enough. It's an overflow it's, and it, it's an excessive amount. What Paul is saying here, he calls it in other areas, the riches of kindness, the riches of Christ, the riches of his glory. But here's what it means. When we need God's love, he gives us more than enough. When we need God's hope, he gives us more than enough. When we need peace, he gives us more than enough. When we need power, he gives us more than enough. When we need wisdom, he gives us more than enough. When we need grace, he gives us more than enough. When we need forgiveness, he gives us more than enough. Every single thing that we need from him, he gives us more than we need. He saturates us with himself. God gives us this uncontainable, unrelenting flow of his goodness and his benefits and himself. He saturates us. But there's one more element that we see. Not only does God save, not only does God saturate, but God secures. 
He secures us. Verse five. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. It says that he has adopted us. Now, some of you here this morning, you may, have, you may be adopted. And so you understand that concept from a, from a child's perspective. Maybe some of you have adopted. And so you understand that concept from a, from a parental standpoint. And that's a beautiful picture. This word adopted even takes it a step further. What this word really talks about is being given status of the elder son. See, in the Jewish tradition, back in the day, especially in the Old Testament, the eldest son got the majority of the inheritance, the, the, the uh, uh, majority of the honor, a, a double portion, if you will. The other siblings got some inheritance too, but the eldest son got the most. And what he's saying is when we're adopted, what he's saying is I am giving you the inheritance that belongs to the eldest son. I've adopted you and now you're the eldest son. And that adoption is irrevocable. If you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob's the younger son, Esau's the older son. Jacob tricks Isaac into getting the blessing of the oldest son. He gets the blessing from Isaac, then Esau comes up and he wants the blessing and Isaac says, I'm sorry, I've already given it to Jacob. This adoption as the eldest son between us and God is irrevocable. We are safe and secure. Now add to that verses 13 and 14. It says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, when? Until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This says, one, that he's marked us. This word mark literally almost means to mark on an object. And when you put that mark, when you put your mark, a king, for example, would put his mark on an object that signified authority, identity, and security. So when he says we've been marked with this seal, what that means is Christ has put his mark of authority on my life. I now have the authority of the king of kings. I have the authority in me, the power of God, and the, the authority that he has granted victory and power over the enemy. I have the authority of God but I also have the identity of Christ. He's put his name on my heart. He's written his name inside of me. So now I'm recognized as a child of the king with all the rights and all the privileges that a child of the king has. But then also it signifies security. When the king would put his mark on something, it was security and it simply meant, that's mine, don't touch it, hands off. If you mess with this, you're messing with me. And it became untouchable. And that's the concept that we've, been, we've received this mark. We have the security of God and we are untouchable. The enemy cannot take away what God has given us. But verse 14 now says that it's a guarantee that we have this deposit. So what is the mark? What is the deposit? 
The better question is, who is the mark and who is the deposit? And it's the Holy Spirit who serves as a deposit that does what? Guarantees our inheritance. That word speaks about a promise. It's a guarantee. It's like uh, if you're going to go rent an apartment, you put down a deposit. So that deposit guarantees that that apartment's yours until you move into it. Or if you buy a house, you put down some earnest money, and that earnest money guarantees that you're going to get this house before you move into it. That's the concept here, that God has given us the Holy Spirit to reside in us, and that Holy Spirit serves as a deposit that guarantees our inheritance. Our inheritance can never be given away. It can never be taken away. And the cool thing about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit serves two functions. He serves as a guarantee for our inheritance in the future, but he also serves as the power for the present. So he resides in us as a deposit and living in us. He gives us the power now to live the life of Christ. He lives through us, but he also serves as a deposit that guarantees our inheritance for the day to come. So when you ask me the question, why do we celebrate God today? (laughs) Because he's so good. Why do we praise him? Why does Paul spend this first part of the chapter praising him? Because he can't contain himself. He saves us, he saturates us, he secures us, he's redeemed us, he's forgiven us, he's chosen us. So he just burst out in this celebration and that's what we're doing this morning. As a community of River Fellowship, we're bursting forth saying, God, thank you, we celebrate your goodness and I pray that you as an individual are able to celebrate the goodness of God in your life. Here's my prayer, is that you would walk in his salvation. If you're here this morning and you've never entered into a relationship with Christ, you've never given your life to Christ, there's never been that moment where you have responded to him and said, yes, I want to have a relationship with you. Right now he's drawing you and he's speaking to you. And if that's you this morning, don't leave without responding to that call. In a moment we'll be singing and worshiping and we'll have some prayer partners on the side. You can just go to them and say, I just want to talk to somebody about what it means to have a relationship with Christ and they'll, they'll talk to you about that. They'll pray with you. So walk in his salvation, but two, walk in his saturation. Just remember and realize everything that he's given you and walk in his security. Because if you know Christ, if you're in Christ, that will never change. You're secure until the day of redemption. Would you bow with me? In just a moment after I pray, we'll stand, we'll sing. You don't have to sing. You may want to stay and pray. You may want to sit and pray. You may want to find someone to pray with. As I said, we'll have some, some prayer partners on the side that you can go to and pray with. You may just want to celebrate the goodness of God. I don't know where your heart is this morning and what's going on in your life. I just know God is so good. And I hope you won't leave this morning questioning or doubting his goodness. Father, we love you. I just pray that your spirit would continue to speak. And Father, for those that need to pray, may they take that opportunity. For those that need to speak to someone, may they take that opportunity. For those that just need to stand and worship and celebrate, Father, may they take that opportunity. 
but may you be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.